we have officially made it to the part of Deuteronomy that makes your eyes start to cross a little bit. Hey, this was Meredith's favorite book, not mine, so blame her. The first 11 chapters of the book kind of serve as an introduction to the whole thing. And starting in chapter 12, you get what we might most associate with the law, with a capital L, those long lists of what you should or shouldn't do in every conceivable situation. But we'll get to some of those in future weeks. For this week, we're going to focus in on chapters 7 through 11, which are more or less a series of mini sermons on the same theme. They aren't so much repetitions, although they can kind of seem that way, which is where the eyes start to cross a little bit, as they are variations. Like if any of you are classical music aficionados, the way a symphony has a central theme that's then altered in different ways to highlight different aspects. And the central theme of these chapters is exactly what we've seen repeated over and over again in the opening six chapters of Deuteronomy. The first two of of the Ten Commandments, for example, say, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall make no carved likeness, no image of what is in the heavens above, or what is on the earth below, or what is in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow to them, and you shall not worship them, for I am Yahweh, your God, a jealous God. It's also the heart of the Shema that we saw last week. Hear Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today on your heart. In fact, if you've been around with us for any length of time, you might remember that this was the central theme of the entire book of Jeremiah, the central theme of the entire book of Matthew, the central theme of the entire book of Revelation. It's safe to say this is the main theme of the Bible. Really. Trust Yahweh, not idols. Yahweh is God. Jesus is Lord. The idols of the nations, the gods of Rome, Caesar, depending on the book you're reading, they aren't. That's the message. And it keeps getting hammered home again and again throughout scripture. And these chapters here in Deuteronomy are a microcosm of that. But why? Why repeat so much until the eyes start to cross? I think it has to do with the reality that this message is revolutionary unprecedented. It's virtually unique in the history of religion up to this point. The idea that there would be one God to the exclusion of all the rest. So I kind of think of it as Moses saying, or God saying through Moses, I suppose, again and again, no, seriously, just Yahweh. Like, seriously. (laughs) That is, as we've said before, the way to life, the only way to life. And so these chapters again and again tell the people, Yahweh is the God who will protect and provide for you. The one who will drive out the powerful nations currently in this land. The one who will bless you and help you be fruitful and multiply in this land. The one who will send the rains and help crops grow so you can live abundantly in this land. The one who will protect you from the great nations and empires that surround you and want to drive you out of this land. Yahweh will do it all. So get rid of every temptation that might be there to turn aside and start worshiping someone or something else. Because they won't protect you. They won't provide for you. Only Yahweh will. As I just said, the entire ancient world was polytheistic. The philosophical perspective of literally the whole ancient world was that there were many gods. Why were there many gods? Well, because each god or goddess had their own lane, so to speak. 
I'll use Greek myth as our example because I think it's likely most of us, including me, are far more familiar with that than with the intricacies of the Hittite or Ugaritic pantheons. But in Greek myth, you have Zeus, who is the chief god, but also the god of storms. Zeus brings the rains and also keeps order. You have Poseidon, the god of the seas. He keeps the economy of trade going. You have Ares, the god of war. He keeps the nation safe. Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. She makes the babies come. Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and and so on and so on. Zeus didn't have authority over the seas. And Poseidon couldn't help you have a baby. They had their lanes in which they stayed. And depending on the needs you had, you might make your appeals to one or the other of them. And it was the same thing, more or less, in the ancient Near East, the nations around Israel. And it was pretty much universally understood that not only did the gods have their own lanes in terms of their abilities or their interests or their powers, they also had a geographically limited scope of power. The gods of Egypt had power in Egypt. And wherever the boundaries of Egypt stop, that's where their power would stop as well. Unless they, through the power of Egypt's armies, of course, were to expand the borders, and then in the act of conquering new territory, the gods would be showing that their power extended further than previously thought. The upshot of all this for our purposes here is that it would have been entirely understandable, completely expected, really, for the people of Israel to think that, sure, Yahweh protected us in the wilderness, and as we wandered as nomads, and was with our nomadic ancestors Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but now we're in Canaan, building farms and cities, so maybe there are new gods who have power here. Maybe Yahweh is the god of nomadic wanderers who could protect and provide for us there, but now we're here, and Baal and Asherah and Molech might be the ones who can help us now. We look back at this from our philosophical perspective of monotheism, which is what's basically assumed by most people today, that we do or do not believe in God. I mean, even atheists are largely saying they don't believe in God, not in the gods, plural. That is the default position for us today. And when we look back, at it seems inconsistent and even ungrateful for the people of Israel to have seen Yahweh's power and setting them free from slavery and then sustaining them through the wilderness, but now they turn aside to other gods? Come on, Israel. But that wouldn't have seemed at all inconsistent back then. Sure, they would say, Yahweh was God there, but what about here? And so Moses says over and over, no, just Yahweh. Like seriously, just Yahweh. The God of all the earth, of all things. Yahweh can protect and provide for you here just like there. It's no surprise, um, in light of all this, that by all biblical and archaeological evidence, it took a long time for the people of Israel to actually wrap their minds around this. Like, hundreds of years went by where they, at best, worshipped Yahweh and the other gods. The people were, for the most part, both philosophically and practically speaking, polytheists despite what Moses and the rest of the Bible tries to bang home into their heads, and in these chapters in particular. And here's where we today can get ourselves into trouble, because we read this through a philosophical lens. Do we believe in multiple gods or just one God? And we say, well, we think there's only one almighty spirit being that exists. So that means we believe in one God. So we got this covered. Deuteronomy 1 to 11, check. But here's the thing. 
Deuteronomy is not interested in philosophical monotheism. It is interested in practical monotheism, everyday monotheism. Deuteronomy doesn't care how many powerful spirit beings you do or don't think exist. In fact, the Bible's really kind of fuzzy on that question of whether or not there are other powerful spirit beings, because that isn't the point. The point is, where do you actually put your trust in your actual everyday life? Which of the powerful spirit beings or abstract concepts like wisdom or power or material things like money or sex, which of those do you look to to protect and provide for you? Which of those many things do you think will give you life? That is practical monotheism. But the reality then and now is that the vast majority of the world is practically polytheistic. Humans look to many sources for protection and provision. You actually see this in the variations on the theme that I was talking about in these chapters of Deuteronomy. The point Moses is making is not that the gods of the Canaanites don't exist in some abstract philosophical sense. It's that you should crush their temples and burn their phallus poles and remove all temptations that might cause you to look to them instead of Yahweh in a practical everyday trust sense. And these chapters aren't just concerned about the gods of Canaan either, the Baals and the Asherahs, um, in the sense of them being powerful spirit beings. In chapter 7, starting in verse 7, it says this, It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that Yahweh set their heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of peoples. It was because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath that they swore to your ancestors, that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you from the house of slaves, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Don't look to the God of numerical superiority, and therefore military might, to protect and provide for you, says chapter 7. That God never got you anywhere. That God would have left you as slaves, but Yahweh, Yahweh loves you, and so set you free and defeated your enemies for you. Trust Yahweh. In chapter 8, starting in verse 12, it says, When you have eaten your fill and have built fine houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks have multiplied and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then do not exalt yourself, forgetting Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Chapter 8 is saying, Don't look to the God of material wealth and prosperity to protect and provide for you. That God is fickle and comes and goes with the rain, Yahweh will always give you an abundance of what you need. Trust Yahweh. In chapter 9, starting in verse 4, it says, When Yahweh your God thrusts them, the other nations, out before you, do not say to yourself, It is because of my righteousness that Yahweh has brought me in to occupy this land, and it's because of the wickedness of these nations that Yahweh is dispossessing them before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, that you are going in to occupy their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, Yahweh your God is dispossessing them before you, in order to fulfill the promise that Yahweh made on oath to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know then that Yahweh your God is not giving you this good land to occupy because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people." 
Remember and do not forget how you provoked Yahweh your God to wrath in the wilderness. You have been rebellious against Yahweh from the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place. Chapter 9 is saying, don't look to the God of being a good person and doing the right things to save you. You aren't that good and you don't do the right things all that consistently when it really comes down to it. Trust Yahweh. The warnings you see are not just about powerful spirit beings and philosophical belief in or disbelief in them. The warnings are about the practical polytheism of nationalism and militarism and materialism, self-sufficiency and self-righteousness. And I'd say those gods are still around with us today, don't you think? We saw this in Revelation, if you listen to the backdrop uh, series that I did on that. The people were tempted to worship Rome and Caesar, not because any of them actually believed there was a literal spirit being called Roma, but because Rome was the empire that protected and provided for them. So they felt they should worship it accordingly, put their trust there. You can't worship God and money, Jesus says, a few hundred years after Deuteronomy was written. No one seriously thought there was a powerful spirit being called money, but people still worship at that God's altar. The way of the world is practical polytheism. Always has been. Always will be. And the call of Deuteronomy then and now is to reject the other gods. Because Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. In the strongest possible terms, these chapters, and we'll talk more about um, this on a backdrop episode in the next week or so. But in the strongest possible terms, Moses tells the people to completely destroy to completely eradicate all temptation to look to the other gods. Kind of like how Jesus told people to pluck out an eye or cut off their hand if those things were causing them to stray from Yahweh. Get rid of whatever might cause you to look to other sources of protection or provision, whether those are literal spirit beings or, more likely then and now, material security or abstract concepts like personal, tribal, or national power. Because Yahweh is the one who sets us free, who gives us life, who never leaves us or forsakes us, who allows us to flourish, who gives us joy, who fills us with peace. Yahweh is the one, the only one, of whom we can reliably say, no matter what happens, it will all be okay, because Yahweh is my God, and they love me. When we were together, we engaged in, as a response, an old practice that helps us to affirm and reaffirm our commitment to this God, Yahweh, that helps us to turn back when we've been distracted by the practical polytheism of the world around us. It's a practice called confession. Now, sometimes people limit the meaning of confession to just naming individual sins that we have committed, saying sorry to God that we've messed up again. But confession is broader than that, really. Confession is telling the truth. And sometimes that truth is, yes, I have done things that aren't reflective of who you, God, are. But sometimes confession is, I confess Jesus Christ as Lord. I confess, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. Sometimes we are naming the truth that we are aligning ourselves with this God and renouncing the other gods. 
And that's the sort of confession that we engaged with together and that I would invite you to engage with here now as we listen to this podcast, to affirm that we want Jesus to be our one and only Lord in the midst of a world full of idols. So we're going to do this kind of as a call and response. I'm going to name one of the gods that sometimes distracts us, that tempts us to trust in it instead of Jesus. And then we can say out loud, I'll say it out loud and you can say it out loud wherever you are listening to this to reaffirm what is true, but we want to trust in you alone, Jesus. But we want to trust in you alone, Jesus, naming what is true, even in a world of practical polytheism. To get started here, I'm going to read a verse from Deuteronomy 6 and then one from Romans 10. From Deuteronomy, we read, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. You must love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your strength. And Romans 10, 9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So here we go. God, we confess there are times when we look to relationships to make it all okay. That if we find the right friends, the perfect family warmth, healthy and well-behaved children, that that will make us whole. And then we respond, but we want to trust in you alone, Jesus. We confess there are times when we look to our bank account, retirement plan, home equity, the wealth we have or hope to accumulate, and think that if we have enough, we can protect and provide for ourselves. But we want to trust in you alone. Jesus. We confess there are times when we look to our work ethic or our intelligence or people skills or resourcefulness or some other quality of ours, thinking that they will protect us, allow us to always land on our feet. But we want to trust in you alone, Jesus. We confess there are times when we feel overwhelmed by the state of the world and look to entertainment or sex or food or drugs or social media, to make us feel like it's all going to be okay. But we want to trust in you alone, Jesus. We confess there are times when we look to our jobs, our degrees, our status in the eyes of others, and believe those will fulfill us and keep us safe. But we want to trust in you alone, Jesus. We confess there are times when we put our trust for safety and security in the power of our military or our police, when we trust in the threat of violence to keep the world in order. But we want to trust in you alone, Jesus. Let's pray. We trust in you alone, Jesus. And you tell us that when we turn back to you, to put our trust in you and you alone, whether for the first time or the thousandth, that you are like a parent running to meet a long-lost child who has finally come home. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for loving us. Help us to trust always and only in you. Amen.